Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Sabota Kendall, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're taking a journey through crypto crime in 2020. As anyone who's followed the price of Bitcoin over this past year can attest, it's been a wild ride for cryptocurrencies. That extends to the illicit use of crypto as well, with new trends emerging in the past 12 months alongside variations of tried and true criminal techniques. To explore this, we're joined by Kim Grauer, head of research for blockchain analytics firm Chainalysis. Kim recently led the creation of the 2021 State of Crypto Crime Report, and drawing from that extensive report, Kim describes the most interesting trends she found in her research, including insights on hacks, darknet markets, domestic extremism, and so much more. Kim, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on the Financial Crime Cast uh, and excited to hear this preview of the Crypto Crime Report in 2020. So thanks again for uh, for giving us this, this preview. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys about the report. Well, let's start off with kind of the basics here of, you know, exactly what's happening in the crypto in the cryptocurrency and crypto crime space. And I know, you know, many of our listeners have a perception that uh, of cryptocurrency as as something that facilitates crime. That's certainly a reputation that it's carried for a while now. Um, Do you find that this is that this is still true? Definitely crime is a big part of what we're interested in over at Chainalysis and the things that we are interested in staying on top of, if only because we know that criminals are the fastest to adapt to new technologies and are definitely a big part of when you think about cryptocurrency, you think about the dark web, you think about ransomware, you think about North Korean hacking organizations. So we take it, it's a it's a, one of our biggest Uh, efforts each year is to take on this crime report. It's not that crime only happens once a year. It's just that it's a really good time to sum up the year and to look at all of our data and ask, hey, what changed from the year before and what can we learn about what we might want to think about in the upcoming year? And one of the reasons why we can do this is because of our extremely unique and extremely powerful data sets that is core to how Chainalysis operates. Just to give you a little primer, we everyone has a wallet. Every you know everyone has a cryptocurrency. Not everyone has a cryptocurrency wallet, but also <laughs> you should. But any service <laughs> that accepts cryptocurrency, they will have some sort of core infrastructure for where they store the their cryptocurrency and that is usually at the, that is in a cryptocurrency address and what chain analysis does is we comb through the blockchain you know hundreds of blockchains at this point and we identify the wallet addresses of all of these big services and what we also do is identify the wallet addresses of criminals and Therefore, we're constantly doing this. We're constantly looking to, we have people on our team who are investigating scams, ransomware attacks, hacks in real time. We're looking for every sign that there's a new type of crime that we should be aware of. And then we can aggregate all this data together. And then my job is simple. I just add it all up and say how it changed month over month. And 
that allows us to see the high level numbers that you might see in the media or in the news. And the numbers this year were 0.34% of all transfers associated with, of all economic transfers associated with cryptocurrency were associated with illicit entities. That's 0.34%, about $10 billion worth of activity. And that is down from, I think, about $20 billion the year before, or 2%. So we saw a really deep decline in activity. And the main people, people think, wow, that's really low. And it is low because, because there's so much other non-illicit activity happening on cryptocurrency. But also, we think it's important to emphasize that this is capturing when the source of illicit activity started and originated on the blockchain, whereas it does not capture, let's say, a cartel purchases drugs and needs to make a transfer internationally. So they go and they buy Bitcoin to send across borders. That would not be captured within this number because the source of the, of the transfer did not touch an illicit entity such as a dark net market or a ransomware wallet or some other identifiable criminal wallet. So um, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's an important caveat. It's a question we get a lot. You know, what about sort of, you know, dirty money originating through drug trafficking or human trafficking or these other forms coming from fiat, putting it going into crypto and then potentially moving from one user to another without necessarily touching like uh, a wallet or an address identified as as having some kind of illicit activity. So there is potentially some um, you know, money laundering or other types of transactions out there that are not captured in that. But to your point, you know, this is a this is an estimate. This has some robust methodology around it, and it is much lower a much lower percentage than maybe a lot of people would think. Um, but that said, there is still quite a bit of you know illicit activity taking place uh, involving crypto. So what did what have you seen in this report or otherwise as kind of the top? three trends in 2020? What really jumped out at you from the past year? We saw three major trends this year. And the first the first major trend that we saw, we actually decided to call the report the year of ransomware because of how much of an increase in total ransomware payments we saw in the year 2020 over the year 2019. And branding this year, the year of the ransomware is important. Last year we called, we called last year the year of the scam and the year before that was the year of the hack. And we, we generate that name by looking at the year on year percentage growth and the amount of uh, proceeds, I guess you would call it, going to this specific type of criminal. And so, there was over a 300% growth in ransomware payments made to these criminals in 2020. And, you know, this is, this is very striking. And we talked to a lot of people and showed them these numbers. And they mostly said, yeah, that makes sense. That's consistent with what we've been seeing, you know, talking to law enforcement, talking to cybersecurity professionals, who have just been dealing with an onslaught of ransomware attacks against people. 
the tools in these ransomware criminals toolkits are evolving. They're becoming more sophisticated. People are using things such as a, a double extortion um, attack where not only do they lock your computer, but they also threaten to leak your personal information. And what the implication of that is you're more incentivized to actually pay because not only are you might lose your your computer and everything saved on your computer, but you could also lose some highly sensitive information to the public world. That was the first major trend. We worked really hard to plot out and map ransomware as a business. So as things, these criminals, they have to deal with hundreds of millions of dollars now. And when you're dealing with that size of an industry, you have to, you kind of have to get some business structure in there if you want to do things more efficiently and scale. These in groups, they're having customer service bots helping their the people they bought pay the ransomwares it the payments in a, a seamless way. We've seen this, we've plotted this out. You can use blockchain analytics to structure a ransomware company by looking at where the payments are going after the ransom is paid. Some of it might be going to um, bulletproof hosting services. Some of it might be going to dark webs to purchase more um, lists of people to attack. Ransomware is definitely a really, um, a really um, important thing for us to stay on top of. And that's why we did call it the year of the ransomware. The second big trend that we saw was, um, I would have to say, pertains to our findings on money laundering. What we're working really hard to do is understand the scale of money laundering using cryptocurrency, which is a question you could never answer using fiat money. And it's something that we are taking on at Chainalysis by looking at the ultimate off-ramps of illicit money, where it ultimately goes in order to make a fiat conversion. And we're finding that there's a finite, quantifiable, noticeably small number of deposit addresses nested on exchanges that are receiving those illicit funds. And I think that this is kind of just the beginning in breaking open this whole capability from in the way that blockchain and the transparency of blockchains allows us to understand how money laundering works and the potential size of it. And seeing, seeing this happen was one of the big findings, but we also saw associated with money laundering more and more people are money laundering, professional money launderers are actually using cryptocurrency as one stage in their money laundering process. So maybe they're an organized criminal group and they're now diversifying to one stage well, of their money laundering, their entire money laundering infrastructure, which it, it, a lot of it doesn't involve cryptocurrency. But we're seeing more of these people who are professionally in the business of moving illicit money using cryptocurrency, bring, adding cryptocurrency to their toolkit to um, carry out massive money laundering operations. Uh, and the, I think the final thing that was interesting in this report was our look at domestic extremism, um, especially as it um, related to the Capitol riots. 
some donations made around that time and the looking at you know looking at the way that cryptocurrency factored in to the funding of some of some of those extremists we we did a blog about it and it's also in our crime report as well there's not a huge takeaway from that yet but it is an interesting thing to be able to have our eyes on yeah and absolutely i mean a, a subject of um great interest around the world i know that that uh when the the findings came out related to the capital riots it got coverage from you know media frankly worldwide just the 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 timeliness and the interest in that that uh and relevance of that investigation was uh was very much on point and some some really good points you know within those three trends and, and especially even even touched on some potential red flags or things that um if a, a crypt if you're you know sitting at a crypto exchange or you at a firm with visibility into um, where some of these these transactions are going, you know, if you see funds flowing to things like bulletproof hosting services, right, that might be that might be raising a red flag. There are legitimate reasons you could use that, but that also might be something you want to look at, you know, more closely. Um, and I think your point of the average, you know, criminal, um, and this touches on a question, you know, we'll get into in a little bit, is, is, or maybe not quite your average, but your traditional kind of money launderer, um, whether that's a, a professional that is affiliated with transnational organized crime or is just an independent operator, is moving more and more into crypto is something, you know, a, a very, a very interesting point because I know a lot of our listeners out there are in the AML space. Um, and maybe at financial institutions, um, you know, traditional banks or money services businesses and that type of thing. So, you know, you may be seeing increasing flows of flows of funds to and from crypto. Um, and again, you know, the vast majority of those are legitimate, but there are these these players out there who are increasingly using crypto, you know, not, as just one method of layering or another method of funds transmission. Um, so just a, a important, I think some important notes to keep in mind there. Appreciate that, that perspective. Um, what, what was the most surprising element that you found in your research from this past year? Was there anything that just really, you know, caught you off guard in this, uh, in this, this report on the past year? Well, a lot of it was interesting for, you know, uh, just to say each type of crime that we analyze, whether it be dark net markets, ransomware, stolen funds, domestic extremism, anything, they're, they're all extremely different and require a very different set of tools and understandings and worldviews and history and experience in order to, to get that analysis right. And so you know, to some degree, yeah, it's good to lump it all in together and say this percentage of cryptocurrency is associated with illicit. But the second you break it apart, it becomes a completely different um, landscape of criminal activity. And so beyond that, I and I've said this, I said this kind of in my last answer, one of the most fascinating things for me to do is to be able to quantify the money laundering side of things. We can look at all of the illicit activity happening and we can say down to the deposit address, 
see where those funds are going to. And when it comes to hacking, we analyzed the DPRK group a lot this year. When we look at those deposit addresses, we're able to see links between other hacks that are happening. So how is the same deposit address that was used to funnel um, to funnel certain money from one hack, how is that connected to another hack? Is it that the same bad actor carried out both those hacks? And so not only was money analyzing the odd deposit addresses able to show us just how quantifiable the world of money laundering is using cryptocurrency, but we can make associations across different types of crime. So why is this strain of ransomware, ransomware A, and ransomware strain B, both using this the same deposit address on this one exchange? And that's really powerful because it's already hard enough to make these connections across cybercrime groups um, because of just how, you know, they're very advanced at using technology. And to see these overlaps happening where, okay, also, also these two ransomware groups are using a deposit address that Darknet Marketplace is using. It allows us to be able to make connections that you would not have been able to make without this actual on-chain data. And yes, to some degree, some of the deposit addresses are just services or OTC brokers, but how are these different criminals coming to the same OTC brokers? How are they coming to the same services to use? And so the power of looking at these off-ramps, it was really surprised. I think there were some deposit addresses that were connecting up to 50 different types of crime. And seeing like <laughs> this one entity right here is the center of gravity for 50 different types of crime on the blockchain. Like you can see that open, re open our software product reactor, put it in there. You can, you can see it happening. And so, you know, that that was always that was a really cool part of of seeing this report just beefing up our ability to to do to do that type of research. Yeah, no, that, that's it's fascinating because it's just a level of transparency that's impossible to achieve in the traditional financial space, right? You know, just because of the way that transactions are are siloed and visibility is 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 limited by where you sit. Um, within a financial institution, uh, you know, the fact that you can see these choke points or these kind of these aggregators for various kinds of criminal transactions, you know, is, is very powerful and it potentially, you know, looking ahead means that's some very useful intelligence for law enforcement um, or, you know, uh, operations to target or shut down some of these nodes of, or hubs of criminal activity. So, uh, so really interesting. We, we talked about this in, in your previous answer, but just to dive a little bit deeper on the money laundering point and kind of how you are seeing traditionally non-crypto uh, players uh, or bad actors getting into crypto, you know, who who is entering into the crypto space? You mentioned professional money launderers um, and specifically kind of how are they doing it? Um, 
you know, is it, what's the mechanisms that they're utilizing to move funds into and out of cryptocurrencies? Is this crypto ATMs, you know, uh, your local Bitcoins or P2P sites, you know, uh, unlicensed exchanges? Is it all the above, whatever's convenient? So any thoughts on kind of um, who's entering this space and how the and what strategies they're using for some of this money laundering activity that you're noting? It's a great question. And one of the things that we are restricted to is when we are looking at these types of cases, we have to just rely on an actual investigation that we've participated in. So because we can't just start with dark net markets and let go to money laundering, we have to have some sort of outside intelligence. A lot of these are the insights that we have surrounding the question you've just asked are going to be dependent on which case studies we've actually happened to be participating in the investigations. And the way that we've seen it coming up are the money laundering circles that we that we that we have been investigating are a lot of the times tied to organized crime. And the money launderers are only in the business of laundering money. They're not doing anything else. They don't sell drugs. They don't sell, they don't carry out, you know, other actions. Their one purpose is to create a infrastructure for laundering money. And so you can imagine if your sole job is laundering money, you are might be on top of some of the latest technologies in how you can carry that out with a lesser chance of getting caught. And so the, the case studies we've seen, it has been an all of the above approach. We've seen some usage of mainstream exchanges. We've seen money moving between peer-to-peer -peer exchanges and high-risk exchanges. And it really depends on that one person who is the head of the money laundering portion and what they go tell their runners or the various people to do who then go move the money and their point people. So there isn't one go-to strategy for this is what a, someone in an organized crime ring would go do to launder money. It really depends on which jurisdiction are they in, which exchanges do they have access to, which, um, Maybe they don't. Maybe they're in a jurisdiction where they might not have great access to. Um, they they are dependent on a specific banking regime. Um, what do they know about? How technically savvy are they? All of those things come into play and will impact the overall laundering strategy. And so, yeah, it's really dependent on so many different variables besides just the need to launder money. It's it's where you are what you have access to, what you know about your banking system. And we've seen, we've seen many different, <laughs> you know, types. I wish there was one way that then we could just write an algorithm and capture it, but there's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to an important point, which we've kind of been touching on throughout this discussion. And that is the way that the crypto ecosystem is kind of increasingly integrated into, you know, it's a part of the financial system, right? So there's, the fact that there's not one, you know, one way to do it just 
it just you know highlights the fact that there are many ways to move funds into and out of crypto and uh, many different crypto business models that have their various weak points or ways to be exploited by by uh, financial criminals and so you know it's it's increasingly sort of one one broader financial system rather than crypto over here and you know fiat and banking over here type of thing um so yeah obviously you know in that in that kind of world there are many different techniques and strategies for moving money uh let's let's uh transition a little bit and, and talk about um hacks whether that's of crypto exchanges uh or otherwise and there was it was quite an active year for cyber crime in general i think there's a lot of reasons for that but i'd love your perspective on why we saw so many hacks um in the past year the the number of hacks that we saw was at an all-time high even though the the value hacked was definitely nowhere near an all-time high and the reason for that was we saw a huge number of DeFi hacks, people, a huge number of DeFi hacks, where these new projects that were being launched, uh, many of them have proved to have vulnerabilities, whether it be because the code behind the project is open source and someone could um, actually take advantage of that to find a vulnerability through which they could carry out an attack, or there's this process um, where you could carry out a flash loan attack, which is pretty much a price manipulation strategy. And then finally, there's also, we saw a lot of just exit scams or you know, people, what they call pulling the rug is, the, is what it's called where <laughs> you a DeFi ha a, D a a good example of one might be um, let's see here a protocol which you know they say they don't custody funds they offer they offer loans for example they say they don't custody funds except for a twenty four hour settlement clearing period but they build a back door in the code so actually they can they can um, run away with the money. So you think <laughs> so you think it's an airtight code, you're going to lock your money up for 24 hours and um, it's going to transfer then, but actually you've given someone else the possession of your funds and they've built some backdoor into the code which allows them to, at any point that they want, run away with the money so it was really similar to what we saw with the ICO, the ICO bubble in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of good projects, but there was also a lot of bad projects. And because there were a lot of good projects, saw an opportunity to build a fake company and carry out an exit scam or take advantage of the hype. And, and yeah, I mean, other than that, there were only a few exchange hacks, KuCoin being the biggest one, the third biggest in history. And a few other a few other kind of types of hacks, but it was really the number of hacks was driven by DeFi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a, a, maybe a topic for another podcast, but just a ton taking place in the the DeFi space in general. Um, still very much developing um, uh, world of you know kind of subset of the crypto world, but I think a lot more to come there. Looking into kind of the new year 
here and beyond. Um, this was another. This was another topic that we've we've touched on, but I'd love to hear kind of a deeper dive into it because I think it's really interesting for a variety of reasons. There's sanctions. There's obviously sanctions implications. There's this this angle of nation states and their increasing interest in the crypto space, and that's um, the the. The topic of the North Korean hacking group, um, sometimes referred to as the Lazarus Group, um, and they are a, a kind of multi-purpose cybercrime operation. They've also been active in the crypto space. Uh, so, what were they up to in 2020, and you know, wh why would wh what's notable and interesting about the Lazarus Group? We always check in on the Lazarus Group every year, and look at how their money laundering strategy has changed, how much money they have in possession. And one of the things that we found is they're always using the most advanced technologies. They, for example, the use of mixers or DeFi platforms to launder money. They're prolific in their scope and the size of their attacks and their diligence and the way that they are, have been doing this for years. And they don't show any signs of stopping. There's the national security angle as to why this is so important and why we um, follow them and track them so closely. The value added that we're going to have here that you can see in the report when it's released is typically around the Lazarus group, the group's money laundering strategy how long they'll sit on funds for before they move them, what are they doing, when are they cashing out, is it connected with any major announcements coming out of North Korea? And so that's all something that there's not a, a big takeaway from. It's just something that we really, it's really highly important to stay on top of what's going on with their those groups. And, you know, they're behind a lot of, hacking in 2020 and um if you want to dive more into our deposit address research i highly recommend reading the stolen fund section of the report which is coming out soon so yeah they're very uh a group that that we will always be updating their the data on and informing people <laughs> of, of what technologies yeah. they're using <laughs> yeah and i think they're just this kind of you know this fascinating microcosm of, um, you know, the the overlap between a lot of threat actors in the financial crime space in general, but particularly, you know, in the in the sanction space and to some degree the crypto crypto space, and that they're you know affiliated with with North Korea, um, but they're this also this kind of freeform cybercrime operation and. Um, there's just this, you know, these blurred lines between national security threats and, and you know, what we might consider as more traditional financial crime or money laundering or even fraud operations um, that's taking place out there to an increasing degree, I think, even more so than maybe it has in the past. So um, uh, th thank you for, for thank you for keeping an eye on them on behalf of the, the financial crime community. So. Uh, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. Again, uh, the crypto crime, the state of crypto crime report um, will will be out by the time you're listening.
to this and definitely urge you to um, download that. We're going we're gonna to include a link on this page. So if you are, if you are hearing this conversation and, and looking to find it, it will be directly below where you'll be listening to this podcast. Uh, so uh, please do check that out for much more detail. And I know Kim is, is constantly updating it. We're actually talking before we started recording and she mentioned she's already getting requests updated. So uh, <laughs> lots of updated data outside of this report, but it's a, a fantastic piece of work that Chainalysis puts together. So definitely urge you to check that out. Um, and I'll just close with one final question. And that was, and that is, you know, uh, what did you find kind of most interesting or more interesting? What is one of your your cases that you looked into this year that uh, was just a personal highlight for whatever reason? Oh gosh, so many. Or the, I think that the cases that we looked at in early January that were around um, extremist fundraising activity was, you know, top of mind because there's so many questions that arise from, from, from this type of research that we're doing. And, but also just how a company kind of came together and, you know, we saw this happening and all of our investigators, everyone was all hands on deck. Whenever there's a big event, that's what it's like over at Chainalysis. And everyone's contributing in the way that they can. And this product, it was, it was a really fast turnaround. And, you know, when you see that something of impact happening, that your software is able to, uh, of something that's so timely and important and, you know, happening in real time, I think that that was really exciting because we could see the donations coming in. We could see where they came from. We were able to get that information to the right people and, and everyone kind of contributed to in the best they could. So I think that was probably one of the most exciting projects to close the year out, not to mention it was, we were ready to come to a quite a different conclusion around domestic extremism, which was, um, that we had seen actually declines in activity throughout the year. And then, so maybe in October, we were not even sure we were going to include this in the report. We weren't sure. It was a totally different story, a totally different story, <laughs> major different, major growth in the donations being made to these addresses. And like that, it can flip on a dime and suddenly you're dealing with a completely different beast. And so we evolved, we added that into our crime report, we updated the numbers and it was, um, it was a fascinating process. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, you know, um, it's, a, it's a great example of how the, the, the power and potential of crypto, you know, can really play out because of the level of transparency you have into transactions um, and the tools that Chainalysis has developed, it gives you that ability to see things, um, you know, so much more real time than, again, you know, might be possible in the, the more traditional financial system. And that, that real time insight allows much more real time action around it. 
um, you know, everything from the Twitter hack um, of, of, of last year to, you know, the transactions made related to domestic extremism uh, in 2020. So uh, just a really fascinating space and some, as, as mentioned before, some really great work being done by Chainalysis. So uh, thanks again for the, the conversation. Um, thanks again for the work that you do, Kim, and really appreciate everyone listening. Again, uh, look for that link for the Crypto Crime Report and definitely check it out for much more information. And I'm sure we will be uh, talking to Kim again. Uh, definitely look forward to working with you on the next webinar or podcast. Um, so appreciate you being here and thanks again for the time and insight. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to chat.